We're going to be reading from God's word this morning from Genesis uh, chapter 42. Thank you, Billy. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the the land. And they said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there's truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. And then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, 
in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father, and one is no more. And the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you, and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of one of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you will take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the story of Joseph and the work that you did in his life and in the life of his family. I pray, Lord, that as Ryan opens your word to us today, that uh, your message would be heard loud and clear. Pray you would give us eyes to hear or eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Hey, good morning. So great to see you guys here, uh, after, especially after the wave of COVID passed through at least half of the church over Christmas. It's good to have you guys back here with us today. If you're new with us, uh, we are journeying through uh, the book of Genesis together. And one of the reasons that we preach, really try to preach every verse of a book of the Bible when we're teaching is we, don't, we, we think that all of God's word has something for us uh, and that it's, it's profitable for us. And so this is an interesting chapter, isn't it? Because here's what I can almost bet. Let's just say somebody was like, hey, tell me your testimony and how you met the Lord. You would not include this chapter, I promise. Here's the reason why. Because there's all this tension in it and there's absolutely no resolution. There's no resolution. It is, it is living in the middle of the pain of what happened in Joseph's life, you know, his exaltation in Egypt, even still as a slave, and his brothers starting to figure out that God has not forgotten what they've done, and still no resolution with getting Simeon back or reconciling Joseph to his family. You would not tell this story, but here's the reason why I think God wants to tell this story to us today, because this is the process of how reconciliation and restoration actually works. And so today we're going to look at this and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to seek um, what is necessary when we're in the middle of kind of the no man's land of, of knowing that there's sin that's been, you know, uh, perpetrated against us, or maybe, maybe we have sinned against someone else. And, and we're in the middle of that reconciliation process. The thing that we need more than anything else is the thing that God promises to give. And it's this word wisdom, wisdom. So what is wisdom? Wisdom is different than knowledge, isn't it? Knowledge um, 
is, 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 is the information that we need to have downloaded, right? To, to, the, the, the actual facts, the components that we need. And wisdom is the ability to access that knowledge and apply it in an appropriate and helpful, God-honoring way. It's like that old adage, knowledge is like knowing the tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is like knowing not to put a tomato in what? A fruit salad, right? Yeah, it's like that. So it's, you see the difference, you see the nuance. You, you guys have heard that before, surely, right? We all encounter situations where knowledge is not enough. We can't just, I mean, if we look at our world today, if knowledge was our biggest problem, the internet would be our biggest solution, right? It's clearly not. We need wisdom, and it just so happens to be the thing that God promises to give us when we ask him. That's what James 1.5 says. Here's what Proverbs 3 says about wisdom. He says, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than the gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. So what is Solomon, the wisest man to ever walk the face of the planet other than Jesus, saying? He's saying that we need wisdom uh, to faithfully navigate the problems and, and issues that we're going to have in this life, and we only find it through the Holy Spirit. So here's our big idea today. Uh, it's this, is that our all-wise God stands ready and eager to give us the wisdom that we need to walk with him through the pain in this world. So as we dig into this, I want to look at, I'm going to look at two directions of wisdom, kind of that horizontal wisdom that we need to navigate um, relationships in this world, but then also that internal wisdom that we need, um, that, that God really gives us through our conscience a lot of times, because we see both happening in this passage. But, I, but before I get to that, I just want to walk through the dynamics of this passage in, in Genesis 42 real quick. So I'll kind of storytell it. Brandon's read it for us, did a great job kind of drawing that out for us. But here's what's happening in Genesis chapter 42. Jacob, who is Joseph's father, enters the scene once again. This famine has hit the land of Egypt, and it's hit the land of Canaan, and it's bad, and everyone's hungry, and only Egypt has food because God spoke to the Pharaoh through a dream, and Joseph interpreted, and they stored grain up for those seven years of plenty so that they would have grain and food uh, in the seven years of hunger that would follow. And so their, their brothers go down, the 10 brothers, because, you know, Joseph is no more, and Benjamin is the beloved son that Jacob wants to keep with everything in him because he was born of his favorite wife, Rachel, just like Joseph was. And so uh, the, the, the premise is this, if you want to live, you have to go to Egypt. That's what's happening in the land. And so the brothers head down to Egypt, but they go without Benjamin uh, because, because Benjamin is the most valued to Jacob, and he's holding him close. Uh, and, and uh, you know, just a, a side note on that, Jacob's uh, favoritism completely wrecked this family. And we see it over and over again as we look at this. And it, you even see it at the end of Genesis 42 where he says, you can't take my only son. And he's talking about Benjamin. It's like, hold up, bro. You have 12 sons. I mean, how offensive would that be as a son? So anyway, that's a whole nother sermon. But what, what happens when Joseph, get, when, when Joseph sees that his brothers are in Egypt and he's the governor over the land, especially in regards uh, to the allocation of grain uh, and provision for, for everyone, uh, Joseph immediately recognizes, those are my brothers. 
He recognizes this, but the brothers do not recognize him. He probably looks more like an Egyptian than a Hebrew, clean-shaven. He looks way different, so they don't recognize him. And honestly, they're probably not looking for him either. And so Joseph uh, begins testing them. The scripture said that he spoke roughly to them. Um, and then he, he immediately accuses them. You guys are spies. And he says it over and over and over again. He's testing to see what? If they've changed at all. Joseph is not so naive to say, oh, it's my brothers. Let's, uh, let's buddy up again. He wants to test them to see if God's changed them at all. Because if he hasn't, does he feel compelled to enter into that relationship? I don't think he does. I don't think he does. And so um, they, they, they respond to him, hey, we're, we're all uh, sons of, of one man, all 12 of us, and, you know, one is no more, and one is at home with our father. He's like, we're honest men. <laughs> they have the audacity to say that. I'm kind of chuckling as I read that. And then Joseph pulls this ultimatum with him. He says, the only way that you're getting grain and you're getting out of here is if you go back and you bring Benjamin. He didn't say Benjamin, but if you bring him back. And he puts them in custody for three days as they're sorting through this, and the fear of God is beginning to settle in their souls. And then Joseph, Joseph says, hey, I fear God, uh, and, and he's showing his hand a bit uh, because he uses, um, he, he uses the, the, the Hebrew name for God, Elohim, and he, and he puts the fear of God in them, and he says, if you're honest men, Here's what you can do. You can leave one of your brothers back until you bring the other one back to me. And you can take the grain back and feed your family, but I want to see Benjamin. And at this, their, their, um, their consciences are distressed. They are troubled because a wave of unresolved guilt begins to wash over them. And Joseph hears it. It's interesting. Apparently, he doesn't know Hebrew anymore because he needs a translator. But he hears it. And he has to excuse himself from overhearing it because it touches his heart so much that he begins to weep. All of the pain of those 20-something years of slavery and how much his brothers hated him begins to hit his heart. And the reality of seeing them and the possibility of them actually feeling remorse for their sin, it weighs heavy on him. It softens his heart to a degree, and then he takes one of the brothers, Simeon, and he binds them, he binds them before their eyes, which would have been so similar to what happened to him before he was sold into slavery. And he sends them on their way, but before he sends them on their way, he does something else. He instructs the officials to put the money back in the grain sacks, to plant money. And uh, this would serve to freak them out even more because then the assumption is what? They stole the grain. So we see Joseph has kind of got some tricks up his sleeves here. And, they're, and I, I, don't, I think they're kind of God-honoring ways to re-engage with their brothers. So that they get back and they, they, they find out at least one of them has, you know, the money. And then they, they get back and they open up all of the sacks of grain and they realize all of them have the money. And they're unpacking the story to Jacob. They tell him what happens and, and it's... Uh, it's this descent with no resolution. It's, well, we lost one of our brother's dad, and he's demanding for the other brother to get, the other, you know, to get Simeon back. He's demanding Benjamin. Oh, and by the way, it looks like we stole all this grain from the most powerful country in the world, the most powerful nation in the world that's holding all of the cards for the rest of the world. It's this descent with no hint of resolution. And that's where the chapter ends. That's why I said you would not tell this in your testimony. 
you would leave this part out, you would jump to the good news. You'd go from the bad news to the good news. But we need to tell this part of our story because this is where we have to long for the presence of God and apply his wisdom through our tethered nature to the Holy Spirit. And so the the two big things that surface out of here are this. Joseph is exercising wisdom in how he's choosing to re-engage or not re-engage with his family. I think, I think we could have said, you know, Joseph, maybe you should have just naively thrown yourself to your brothers. God doesn't ask him to do that, and Joseph doesn't do that. The second thing is this, is that the brothers are beginning to discover wisdom in a different way because their sins are catching up with them through their own consciences. And that's where I want to focus today, discovering the two directions of wisdom that are necessary for believers to navigate life in this world in a faithful way. So the, the, the two questions, the two, the kind of the two directions really have two questions associated with them. The first one is this, is external relational wisdom. And the question that you might, you might ask yourself today is how, how do you re-engage or how do you choose to re-engage with people that hurt you? What do you do when people hurt you? Are, are you just called to throw yourself at them? Are you called to cut them out of your life? What do you do when people hurt you as a Christian? We see, we see wisdom here for that. The second one is this, is this internal conscience-driven wisdom. How does the Lord use a tormented conscience for his purposes? And you might be in here today identifying yourself a little bit more with Joseph, who's figuring out how to re-engage, or you might identify a little bit more with the brothers, that you've got something in your life and your conscience is just tormented and you don't know what to do with it. No matter which person you identify with, the Lord has counsel for us today. So let's dig into that external relational wisdom piece together here. You know, I think this is a question we all need to ask ourselves. The world says that if we get hurt, we cut people out of our lives, right? We cancel them. We repay evil for evil. That's just what you do, whether it's on social media or interpersonally in a relationship. Joseph could have made that decision. And he, above everyone else on the face of the planet, could have justified it. And people, even believers, would have agreed with him. Yeah, you shouldn't go back there. But it's clear that the longing of his heart is to be restored to his family. But through the wisdom of God. Have you ever been tempted to just cut people out of your life and not even go there anymore? I was in an event recently, and I spotted this this fellow that cut me pretty deep um, with some things that he had said and some accusations that he'd made against me personally and in the ministry uh, that that uh, I personally have, you know, as well. And um, and so I, I encountered him once in a store, and I saw him from across the store. And I kid you not, guys, I just walked out of the store. I I don't know if you've ever done that before. I know I'm showing my, I'm a little honest here. Um, I don't know if you've ever done that before, but at, at that point, the, the, the pain and the prospect of experiencing a fellowship with this brother um, was so heavy for me that I thought it was impossible. So then God in his kindness, you, you get where this is going, brought this fellow into my life again. Lawrenceville is not all that big after all. And um, we were in an event together, and I spotted him from across the room, and I was like getting ready to exit stage left, right? And, um, and I just said a quick prayer, and I said, God, give me wisdom in what to do. I want to run. 
And I just felt that the Holy Spirit calling me to lean in, to take a step, to t- put my toe in the water with this relationship again, instead of bailing. And it, and it led to this kind of kind and decent conversation. Not that everything was buddy-buddy and, you know, that we were, you know, back hanging out again. But you know what's going to happen the next time I see this brother? The conversation is going to be a little bit easier than it was last time because God is beginning to bring a little bit of healing to the hurt and the pain in that relationship. Do you know what this is like? Do you, know, do you feel the temptation to bail and cancel people and cut them out of your lives? Maybe you've done that. Maybe you're doing that right now. What would it look like to just ask God for wisdom like James 1 tells us to do because he says he'll give it to us? This is why one of our values as a church is, is that we would be a reconciled and reconciling people, both personally and corporately, because we think the gospel is big enough to restore even the most broken relationships. Amen? We just need God's wisdom in how to do that. It's not always clear. So I think the story of Joseph and his brothers is a good principle model for how to wisely re-engage with those that have hurt us with the power of the gospel of God in our bones. The question that you know I was asking myself is this in this encounter that I had. Do I believe that the gospel, the resurrecting power of Jesus Christ over sin, has the power to actually change this relationship? And if we're not willing to at least ask God for wisdom and then follow what that wisdom leads to, then we're just saying that the gospel, it, it doesn't even apply there. And anytime we get to the place where we say the gospel cannot apply there, we're in dangerous waters, aren't we? We need wisdom. I think we can be lazy with those that have hurt us and just cut the possibility of transformation completely out of the picture. Now, uh, um, I get that there are situations in life where it is uh, irresponsible and it is not wise to re-engage. Today, I'm not talking about those relationships, those ones that aren't safe, that God hasn't called you to re-engage with, where the distance is God's will. I'm not talking about those today. I'm talking about the ones that we just give up on. And I think there's another you know, side of this dynamic too, the one where we blindly and naively throw ourselves back into someone wholeheartedly who doesn't have a track record of being trustworthy with our relationship. Joseph doesn't do that. Why doesn't Joseph do that? Because God doesn't call Joseph to do that. And likely, God will not call you to do the same thing. There is a a wisdom that is being applied in this re-engagement. So I think that there are two truths that we need to keep in mind as we pursue a re-engagement with this horizontal wisdom that I'm talking about. The first one is this, is that the, the, the truth of the gospel is this, is that it is absolutely possible for anyone to be really changed by the gospel. When we cannot say that, we're in a dangerous place. When, when we look at someone and say it's impossible for them to be changed, we're in a dangerous place because we are taking the place of God. We are not all wise. God is all wise. And he's on the move in our midst, and he will continue to be on the move in our midst until Jesus Christ returns and consummates creation. His kingdom is coming in force with life-changing, resurrecting power all around us through the church. And as far as we're concerned, God can save absolutely anyone. God can transform absolutely any relationship. He can redeem any wrecked 
relationship. And, 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 and the more that we think about his miraculous work in our own lives, the things that seemed impossible for him to change in us, it reminds us that anything is possible with those who believe in God. The scriptures say this from 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. In other words, when something is happening uh, that seems like it's never going to change, uh, God is not on the same timetable as you are, all right? The script, namely, regarding salvation, he says this, but he is patient toward you. God was patient toward you in your lack of ability to change, just like he is patient toward others in their lack of ability to change because he's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, all should reach wholeness with him and, uh, and harmony with others. The general disposition of our Lord is one of patience towards sinners. Is that your disposition this morning? One of patience toward sinners. He's patient with us so that from us, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, right? The patience of the Lord flows through the patience of his people, especially in relationships that require wisdom like this. If we really believe this, we must at least ask God for wisdom because he promises to give it to us. The second thing that we keep in mind is this, and Joseph knows this very well. Trust takes time to rebuild. It does not happen overnight. So our ability to trust in other people who have hurt us is not based on the trustworthiness of other people. If this were the case, we should trust no one. The only way that you and I can trust someone enough to share our lives in a vulnerable way is because God is trustworthy. And his word is trustworthy. And we entrust ourselves to others as a way of entrusting ourselves to the Lord. It's, a, it's, a, it's an extension of God's trustworthiness to us. Not because you and I are trustworthy in and of ourselves. We are all liars, okay? The only reason that we are truthful is because the Lord has set his spirit on us, the spirit of truth that now has transformed us and lives in us. And so when we base our desire to connect with other people that have hurt us on their trustworthiness alone and not God's trustworthiness through us, we are basing it on a sandy beach and not the solid rock. We can learn to trust one another day in and day out by putting on this new self that God has given us, this one that is founded on the truth and the one that walks in the truth. But the power to, earn, to, to gain trust again, to earn trust again, can only come from God, and it doesn't all happen at once, okay? It doesn't all happen for Joseph at once. It doesn't all happen at once in your life. It's clear that Joseph has both of these elements of gospel empowerment in his mind. That's why he's, his heart is pricked, and he weeps when he hears that his brothers are at least considering what they did to him. And that's why he doesn't just tell them to execute them when he sees them face-to-face. He's hopeful that they can change, but he's realistic about the process. That's what it looks like to pursue wisdom in re-engaging with someone that's hurt you. And so what's he do? He, he, He wants to test the reliability of their transformation in several ways. 
He gives them these tests. I, I can count at least four. He keeps a brother back because he wants to see if Benjamin's still alive. He doesn't know if he can believe him yet. Maybe they just, maybe they just sold Benjamin into slavery too, and maybe Joseph just hasn't ran across him yet. The second thing we see is he asked for a tribute to stay back, right? Kind of Hunger Games style. He says, hey, why don't you stay back? See if anyone will sacrifice in this way. See if you're willing to at least leave one of the brothers back as a, as a payment, as good faith, while you go bring Benjamin back to me. Then we see that he places this money back in their grain sacks to see if they've morally changed, if their moral compass has shifted to reflect God's nature in any way because it wasn't the last time he talked to them. Fourthly, he wants to know if they'll come back for Simeon. He wants to know that. So Joseph, we see, is cautiously optimistic about transformation, but he is not naive. He's not naive, and we're not called to be naive about our own transformation or the transformation of others either. Joseph wants to know, has God really brought about change in my brothers, or are they just pretending? The Apostle Paul suggests not only that we ask that question about others, but first we ask that question about ourselves. Am I really being transformed by the gospel, or am I just pretending? You know, the church is full of people that pretend. I'm one of them. By God's grace, I'm pretending less and less the more that I follow Jesus. My hope is the same for you. Here's what he instructs the Corinthian church in saying, he says this in 2 Corinthians 13, verses five through nine, he says this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. Whew. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, the truth is in you, the logos from God, the word or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may, do, that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may have seemed to fail. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. See, we're not called to test God. I know a lot of times our prayers sound like they're testing God. We're not called to test God. But we are called to examine ourselves and the quality of our interactions with others to see if indeed we are in Christ. And if we're in Christ, Christ flows through us. Not perfectly, but definitely he does. So Paul calls these struggling, sinful believers in Corinth, like me and you, to take inventory. And why does he do that? Because gospel love never overlooks sin, but lovingly confronts it for the restoration of the erring brother or sister that we're in relationship with. And we all need loving, safe, grace-driven accountability. We all need that, and God calls us to that. He calls us to be the family of God. We were not made to be sanctified in a closet, but in a family. That's why he gives us the church. But we must confront sin with the hope of Jesus. And these, these tests that Paul mentions are not about just looking like a Christian. Like, that's not hopeful, just looking like a Christian. In fact, the people that, Jesus, that oppose Jesus' ministry the most look the most like Christians, Christians, right? 
They looked the most the part, like they belonged in the church, but they were the farthest from him. And so these tests that he mentions are about asking ourselves if our lives are on a trajectory of looking more and more like Jesus. Because we are prone to sin against God and to one another, and so it's healthy to be tested to see if gospel fruit is actually flowing from our lives. And for genuine followers of Jesus, our testimonies are validated, like what we say we believe, are validated by the evidence of fruit in our lives. We don't seek the fruit to prove ourselves. The fruit flows from the confession of faith. That's what it looks like in the family of God. Now, I'm not telling you uh, this morning to go get to work cleaning yourself up that you may pass the test. That's not what Paul is saying. That's why there's 12 chapters before this, right? That's not what he's saying here. But rather, he's saying that there is a certain trajectory that the truth has in the lives of new creations. And Joseph gets that. Joseph gets that. And if this isn't your experience, I just want to let you know this. You don't have to pretend any longer. Paul wanted the real thing for the Corinthian church, even though they were the most sinful of all the churches he wrote to. There's even a letter he wrote that didn't, he didn't include. I don't want to know what that one said, right? Um, the undeniable resurrecting power of grace is what God wants for us. It's what Joseph wanted for his brothers. The second thing that we see is this, is that there's something happening in the brothers, that there is this internal conscience-driven wisdom that they are that is awakening in their souls. There's something happening in them that has never happened in their lives before. They are starting to feel remorse and conviction for their sin. Nathan, I hope you didn't drink this yet. Anyway, I've been looking all around. Um, so Joseph has this degree of self-protection from his brothers. It's, it's relatable, right? I mean, we, under, we get it. We don't have to explain that. He's, he's concealed his identity. He's spoken firmly with them. And for the most part, he's assumed the worst about them, rightly so. You are spies. And this is all understandable. They deserve this. And I'm so thankful for this chapter that it's in the Bible because this is how people really change. This is how people really change. This isn't Hollywood transformation, but this is real transformation where people are confronted with sin, and it's awfully painful for a long time sometimes before transformation begins to happen in the life of someone. But the Lord is faithful to meet us when we are confronted with the consequences of our sin, when they weigh heavy on us, and that unresolved guilt torments us from the inside out. I want to propose to you today that I think that is God's gift of grace in our lives. He loves us too much to get away with it. He loves you too much for that. And before, before we get into this, I, I want to remind you of the example here in Genesis 20, or 42. And, and I'm going to start in uh, verse 18 here. So, so here's what's happening, just to kind of catch us up to speed. Joseph says to them, you know, do these things and you'll live, for I fear God. He wants them to know that God is in the midst of them. He says, if you are honest men like you say you are, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go, go back home and, uh, and so that their word can be verified. He's testing them. And so they begin to talk with one another, right? The 10 brothers, the two missing in their midst. Or they think two are missing, but only one is. And they say, in truth, we're really guilty concerning Joseph. 
and that we saw the distress of his soul whenever we committed that crime against him. And he begged us with tears in his eyes as a 17-year-old boy not to do it, and we did not listen. This is the confession, right? You don't get to walk out of the darkness unless you confess your sin, right? You don't get redemption unless confession takes place. This is the model in the Bible. And then they say, this is why distress has come upon us. It's not because we just, these unforeseeable circumstances, not just because, you know, it's not raining in Canaan. This distress has come upon us because we are desperately wicked men. And Reuben answered, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? He kind of jabs a knife in here. This was your idea, not mine. But you didn't listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then Joseph turned away from them, and he wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. So what's happening with the brothers here, the ten brothers that are consulting with one another? Their consciences are haunting them. The Holy Spirit is using the consequences of their sin to show how hopeless they really are in hiding in their sin and not repenting. Sin and its consequences, church, never just disappear. You can think that you sweep something under the rug. It will always reappear on this earth at the day that Christ returns, either one. And we will pay for them. Either Jesus pays for sin or we pay for sin. There's no in-between. And the way that Jesus pays for sin is we bring them into the light and we say that we are desperately wicked without you, God. The only way that we can change, the only way that we can be saved is by grace and grace alone. And on realizing this money is in their bags, the agony of their conscience is cutting more and more deeply. Listen to what they say. He says, he said to his brothers, my money's been put back in the sack. It's, it's right here. And listen to this language. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another. And they don't say, we should have listened to you, Reuben. What do they say? What is this that God has done to us? All of a sudden, they see their sin, not just against Joseph, you know, not just against not listening to Reuben, not just against their father, but they see the thing that King David saw in Psalm 51. You know what that is? Against you and you alone have I sinned. You see, it's not until you get to that place with your tormented conscience that you really are open to God's way of dealing with it. You can blame it Uh, You can blame it on other people all day long, but until you see it as an offense against the God of the universe who is holy, you'll not experience the gift that we have in Christ Jesus. And what we see begin to happen in this episode is that he's, Joseph is beginning to see evidence that his brothers are acknowledging their sin from 25 years ago. What are they having? They're having an awakening of conscience, an awakening of that hardened heart, a softening. And an awakened conscience always precedes the genuine conversion of a soul. It it leads to ownership for our sin, 
And it's something that must be embraced to see ongoing fruit in the life of the believer. The longer that you follow Jesus, though, sometimes it feels like things are getting worse and worse, doesn't it? Maybe that's just me. I don't know. But the, that's only a problem in our own self-awareness when the sin stays hidden. The devil has all the power in the dark and no power in the light. That's the bottom line of your sin, all right? He holds all of the cards in the dark, none of the cards in the light. And so the Holy Spirit, even internally through our conscience, makes us miserable when we hide, when we belong to God. And thus, he serves to drag us into the light in whatever way necessary, sometimes painless, most of the times very painfully. So what is this idea of a conscience? Let me just unpack this for a second. Um, Conscience is like an internal dashboard or a witness that helps to guide us according to the value system that we have. So your conscience is only as effective as what the value system that it's based on. They're, They're a type of internal witness to what we already know And this is for better or for worse. Paul says this in Romans 2. He mentions this word conscience a couple times. He says, uh, they show the work of the laws written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. So he says, the conscience is working when these believers, these God followers, these God fearers deny their conscience and they go into sin, that they, they feel miserable. He says it in Romans, not in a different way. He says, I'm speaking about the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. So for better, we see our consciences working uh, when our behaviors and our thoughts conform to what we believe to be true. If If you believe the truth of what God's word says, we feel a sense of pleasure when we follow him and we obey him and we listen to him. We feel God's smile on our life when his grace leads us to obedience. And we feel a sense of worth and value in those moments. I would venture to say that almost all of us have felt like that before. There is a temptation to go to pride when we think that it's in and of ourselves. But when we're in a good spot, we know that it flows from God. Now, for worse, how does the conscience work? And this is what we're seeing in the brothers here is that the other side is that when we violate what our internal conscience values, we feel a sense of unresolved guilt and shame. And the longer this lingers, our consciences torment us. We lose sleep. We start dabbling with addiction. Anything to numb the searing pain of the internal witness of the conscience inside of us. Now, these brothers know God. They know that his word calls them to value all of the image of God, and they know that they have rebelled against God and what they've done to their brother. And and they know that Joseph didn't just go away like they said when they said one of our brothers has gone away. And they know, they're beginning to see that their sin will not just go away either. And they are desperate from relief from their seared consciences. Friends, Is there something unresolved in your heart today? No one else knows about it, but you're sitting here this morning and you can't stop thinking about it. It's a place that you're hiding out in the darkness, but that dashboard light is just blinking bright, and it's all you can hear when I'm talking today. Is there some 
hidden sin in your life that is surfacing through shame and agony? Is there some hidden sin that's tormenting your conscience, stealing your joy, keeping you in darkness? And like Joseph's brothers, is your heart sinking and tormented by the reality of your sin? Because when we commit the sin, we think that it will just go away, that it won't stick with us. But when it does, the Lord allows us to feel this way because it is the true condition of our soul when Christ is not covering that sin. The Lord's will is that you would turn to him this morning. What if in in the place of that torment and anguish and agony that you feel, what if you could see the Lord there standing with you in your midst, but not condemning you, but rather longing to be with you, longing for you to walk in the light with him, longing to give you relief from the thing that you only think darkness can give you relief from? What if God wanted to give you confidence through his gospel that the torment and anguish you feel is actually a gift, just like a dashboard light is on your car, to drive you to the only one that can ever give you any relief? Hebrews chapter 10 talks about the power of this confidence as I land the plane here. He says this, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, this confidence, notice, is not in and of the believer in and of themselves. This confidence to enter the holy places, not by the obedience of the Christian, but by the blood of Jesus. By this new and living way, so not an old and dying way, but a new and living way that he opened to us through the curtain, the holy of holies. That is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, one that stands with us in our shame, one that stands with us when we want to run. We can draw near, not run far, with a true heart, not this seared burden conscience, but with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from that evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He says, let us hold fast, not to our obedience, not to our sin, but to this confession of hope without wavering. Because he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up as the church because we're not sanctified in a closet, we're sanctified in a family. To to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Brothers and sisters, through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we have a new and living way to handle the torment of our souls. The scriptures say that we have been cleansed from this evil conscience and its ways that drive us to isolation and condemn us. And and Jesus gave himself for the unresolved guilt in your life. No other way will bring about healing to the internal life that you experience other than Jesus standing in our midst, present with us as a faithful high priest who's been tempted in every single way that we have, as the book of Hebrews says, yet without sin. And so we seek this confidence that he gives us when our hearts seek to condemn us because we are the beloved. We seek to draw near with full assurance of forgiveness. He's not gonna let us down like we sang instead of running from the reality of our sin like we're prone to. 
We seek for him to give us strength as we hold fast to this confession of faith without wavering in the face of sin. We seek to encourage our hearts to, to prioritize gathering with the family of God when we want to run away by ourselves. So whether you've come in here this morning a little more like Joseph and you don't know how to engage with those that have hurt you, or maybe you find yourself a little bit more like his brothers, really reaping what they've sowed, the gospel of Jesus addresses both realities, both postures of our hearts. And he gives us confidence through the wisdom of God in both directions. And here's my question to you. What are you going to do with what you've heard? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you. Um, I thank you that because the veil has been torn at the resurrection of Christ, at the sacrifice of Christ and the resurrection that follows, the, because the veil has been torn, there is a new and living way to live this life. It is not like the old and dying way, the old and dying way which seeks to hide, which seeks to cut people out of our lives, or seeks to naively throw ourselves into dangerous situations. But God, you have given us a new way to handle life through the wisdom of God. So Father, we know that Jesus is the perfect expression of wisdom in this world. Lord, we need Jesus in our lives. Some of us in this room know exactly what you've called us to do. You've called us to walk out of the darkness and into the light today, to confess our sins to one another so that we can be healed. Others of us have very painful, unresolved things happening in our lives, and we need your wisdom. We need your counsel. We need your spirit. So, Father, as we turn to this table today, we pray that the God of all comfort would meet us in our midst and that you would give us the courage to walk in the light as you are in the light with the wisdom of God as we navigate the pain of this world. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.